So one of my good friends is a pastor out in Seattle and we were talking this week and he told me a story about his daughter. His daughter would insist that we call her almost five. Her birthday is next month. She's never really been that interested in things of faith, in God, in Bible stories, in prayer. He said a few weeks ago he was trying to sing Jesus Loves Me with her and she was just screaming, sing one about pizza. I want a song about pizza. She had no interest in it at all. My friend's a pastor. His wife went to seminary, they're faithful Christians, and this is a really difficult thing for them that their daughter has no interest in God really at all. And it's one of their most fervent prayer requests that she would live into her baptism, that she would come to know the God who loves her and that they love. I know some of you know that prayer. Some of you know that pain of a child who's walked away from the faith or who cares little for something that matters so deeply to you. I know you know that longing that they may come to know the love of God. My friend said something happened this week that changed everything. And I wanna tell you that story, but not yet. First, I wanna invite you to do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, all is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God and they will be my sons and daughters. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the vile, the murderers, those who commit sexual immorality, those who use drugs and cast spells, the idolaters and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls of the seven last plagues spoke with me. Come, he said, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city had God's glory. Its brilliance was like a priceless jewel, like jasper that was clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And by the gates were 12 angels. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons. There were three gates on the east three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles. 
the angel who spoke with me, had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. Now the city was laid out in a square. Its length was the same as its width. He measured the city with the rod and it was 12,000 stades. Its length and its width and its height were equal. He also measured the thickness of its wall, 144 cubits, as a person, or rather an angel, measures things. The wall was built of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like pure glass. The city's walls, foundations, were decorated with every kind of jewel. The first foundation was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third was chalcedony, the fourth was emerald, the fifth was sardonyx, the sixth was carnelian, the seventh was chrysolite, the eighth was beryl, the ninth was topaz, the tenth was chrysoprase, the eleventh was jacinth, and the twelfth was amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was made with a single pearl, and the city's main street was pure gold as transparent as glass. I didn't see a temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is vile and deceitful, but only those who are registered in the Lamb's book of life. Then the Lamb showed me the river of life-giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street, and on each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on him and they will rule forever and always. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, amen. It's Revelation 21, one through 22, five. And what a vision. It's mind bending for us to try to grasp and imagine what it is that John is describing here as he comes to the end of his book and the new heaven and new earth come down. But I think it's John that's actually the one bending language and images and metaphors around, trying to communicate with us something of what he's seeing. He's weaving a beautiful and complex tapestry of all these Old Testament references and visions and language, grasping to communicate with us what it is that he's seeing. We spent an hour and a half looking at this in Bible study and didn't get through all of it. We're not gonna get close right now. So I just wanna look at two things, two things that will help give shape to the whole of the vision. And that's something surprising and something missing. Something surprising and something missing. So first, the something surprising. It might be surprising if you look at the details of how this story begins. 
Because if we were to imagine what the end of the Bible might look like, I don't know if this is what we would picture. I think often we would assume that at the end of the Bible, the earth would pass away, that our physical bodies would be left behind. We'd finally be rescued and liberated out of this material world to live as spirits with God for all eternity, that our souls and the souls of all who are in Christ would be gathered up to heaven to live there now in a non-physical existence for the rest of eternity. We might even picture something like Revelation 4 and 5, that great, great worship scene at the beginning of the book, gathered around the throne of God, singing forever. But that's not what we see, is it? John's vision is surprisingly different. Because here it's not the earth that passes away for heaven to come, but heaven and earth both pass away for a new heaven and a new earth to come like a bride dressed for her husband. See, the hope toward which we're living, the vision that John casts, that Jesus gives him of the end is of a new heaven and a new earth that have both been renewed by the presence of God, that have been united together in Christ for all eternity. Our hope is not that we will float in the clouds or six inches above those golden streets, but the vision is of us walking, dancing, feasting and drinking, and yes, holding one another in a renewed physical existence. See, Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of ours. And what we see in him is not a ghost or a spirit hovering around, but a new and different kind of physical resurrection life, that he is more alive, more physical, more solid than anything we can yet imagine which is important because it means that we're not just passing through this world, that all this isn't just going to be burned up and left behind. Plato was wrong. The physical world is not a prison to be escaped. The world matters. How we treat our bodies matters and the bodies of others matters. The stuff of this life, though transformed in God, carries on into the next. Let me give you one example in the description of this holy city. One of the things that's so strange to me is the 12 gates that are said to be pearls. Pearly gates, but just a single pearl, each of these 12 gates. And if you were paying attention, the walls of this city are 144 cubits feet. That's 216 feet. And one pearl is large enough to somehow fashion a gate through that big of a wall. It defies our imagining. Yet this whole book has been symbolic and John doesn't stop here. So what is he trying to communicate to us by saying the gates are pearls? Well, what's a pearl? A pearl is formed when an irritant, usually a parasite, gets inside of an oyster. And as a defense mechanism, the oyster secretes a, a liquid that surrounds that irritant and when layer upon layer upon layer is added, a pearl is made. Pearls become a symbol for us of purity, but they come actually from an irritant. 
the gates are pearls. And there's more too, because the pearls each have, the gates each have names on them. They're named for the 12 tribes of Israel's sons. Ah, yes, you might think, the 12 patriarchs. And yet, if you know their story, these are not heroic or saintly figures. This family that is the seed of God's nation, Israel, that is the means through which God brings salvation into the world, this family, their story is awful. It's filled with brutality and fraud, violent and violated sex, uh, full of all sorts of terrible things. What's remarkable about their stories is not their heroic examples, is not their saintliness. What's remarkable is that God would choose to use their intractable and unattractive human lives to lay the groundwork for the grand salvation that God would bring in Jesus, their descendant. And it's their names that are written on these pearl gates. It's their broken and incomplete lives that are somehow fashioned by God into a pearl larger than we can imagine. It's the sanctifying grace of God that like an oyster transforms every aspect of our lives and every aspect of this world into the raw material from which the new Jerusalem can be fashioned and formed in order to reflect and radiate the glory of God more brightly than the sun. And it's these gates made from broken lives that now stand open for all to enter in. The stuff of this life will still matter. Matter will still matter and it will be taken up in Christ and renewed and perfected in a new heaven and a new earth. There's something surprising about John's vision, isn't there? There's also something missing. And we might be tempted to miss it because we aren't necessarily looking for it. There's no temple in this new city. And that might not actually be that surprising for us to imagine a city without a temple, but for John and his readers, it was. Especially a new Jerusalem with no temple. See, prophets had envisioned a new Jerusalem. That wasn't new, but each one still had a temple within it that was renewed and rebuilt. John sees no new temple. As Christians, it's easy to miss the point of why the temple existed in the first place and therefore the significance of it being missing. So let's look at that for a second. We get lost in all the rituals and the architecture around the tabernacle and then the temple. And we lose sight of why Israel needed those in the first place. But there was a very simple reason why they had a tabernacle and then a temple. It wasn't to keep God locked up inside it, to control and to wield against their enemies. It wasn't to keep the people out by some abstract and complex system of rituals to maintain power for the priests. It was so that a holy God could dwell in the midst of an unholy people. See, they ran into a problem after they'd gotten out of Egypt. God promised to be their God on Mount Sinai, to make them his people. God desired deeply to dwell with them and journey with them to the promised land. 
But God is holy. And holiness cannot exist in the midst of impurity and uncleanness. And like sodium and water, those two things do not mix well. The people would not have been safe in the presence of God. And so God, to solve this problem, hands down this set of rituals and this architecture of a tabernacle and then many generations later, a temple, so that God could dwell with them. This was a way to allow God to dwell there and protect the people at the same time. But as we continue to read the scriptures, we find that God wasn't happy with just this limited arrangement. See, God's presence came down to dwell in the most holy place in the center of the tabernacle, a cube-shaped room where the high priest, only one person, could enter only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And God's presence dwelled there, but only there. And God wasn't happy with just that. And so God began to plan for something more. It's notable that in John 1, where the same John who wrote Revelation in sharing his gospel, describes the birth of Jesus and says that the word was made flesh and dwelled among us. Dwelled. He uses the same word that described how God's presence dwelled in the temple. Dwelled, tabernacled among us. That God's glory and presence filled Christ in the same way that God's glory and presence once filled the temple. And that in Jesus, God then walked around this world with us. And the surprising thing is that as God's presence came among us in Jesus, our holiness, our unholiness, and our brokenness did not lead us to be destroyed. No, what happens when people came into touch with Jesus? When they were sick, was Jesus made unclean? Were they destroyed? No, they were healed. God's holiness broke through and overcame theirs and made them clean. When death itself came into contact with Jesus, it was destroyed. And on the day when Jesus finally finishes that work and all the evil and brokenness of sin in heaven and earth are finally destroyed, God's gonna come to dwell with us again. This time not in a temple, this time not in one man, this time in an entire city, a city shaped as a cube like the holy place was. And God will be with us and we will be with God and we will see God's face and his glory will be all around us. And God will make us new. That's the promise we hear from the throne. I am making all things new. The creator who shaped and fashioned us is going to bring all things to their completion. That's God's promise. I will be your God. You will be my sons and my daughters. Everything will be transformed. I told you there's something surprising and something missing. And then I said I'd tell you my friend's story. His daughter, who's almost five, has never been that interested in things of faith. And it's been difficult for my friend and his wife. But this week that changed. This week, some of their friends who go to their church uh, have been foster parents for the last two or three years for three siblings. And they decided recently, they didn't just wanna be their foster parents anymore. They wanted to be their parents. They wanted to adopt these children as their own. 
And so this week they went to court, they signed the papers, they legally adopted them. Now these children are friends with my friend's daughter. And so she had a lot of questions this week about what exactly was going on. And as she sat and talked with my friend and his wife, his wife made a connection. And she said, you know, this is what God wants to do with us. God wants to care for you and provide for you and protect you. God wants you to be part of his family. God wants you to be his daughter. And their daughter said, I want that. Can I have that? And so she and her mom sat and prayed that she would be God's daughter, that God would love her and protect her and provide for her, that she would belong to him, that she would be his daughter. She wanted that. Do you want that? Do you want to receive these promises of God? Do you want to be adopted as God's own? Do you want your name to be written in the book of life? Do you want to be gathered in to the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem that comes down beautifully gilded with the glory of God? Do you want to enter through those pearl gates to drink from the rivers of the water of life, to eat from the fruit of the tree of life itself, to be made new and made whole, to see God's face and to live with the one who made you for himself. Do you want that? All you need to do is come to him. All you need to do is trust your life to him to remain steadfast and firm through whatever comes and to trust above all else that the one who is seated on the throne now will come again to make all things new. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.